Welcome to episode 29 of the One Last Sketch podcast, a show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and history. I'm your host, Michael. And I'm Marie. And I'm Corey. And before we start, I just want to say to both of you, thank you for your childhoods. Yes. Today we are talking about 1993's The Giver by Lois Lowry, a book that is well known among Canadians of our age because it was assigned in elementary schools. And elementary or junior high? I remember reading it around grade 7. Around there. Grade 7 is elementary school in the BC education system. We're talking about The Giver and already we're just like in contention. (laughs) Shows you what reality is like in comparison to this world. Not only is this often read at a young age in schools, it's also maybe the only book from that period that is fondly remembered. I think, like, the other things around that time period would be, like, The Indian in the Covered, Ski for Your Mountain, was yeah, one that I I'm trying read. to remember. Um, Underground to Canada is, is in around grade seven. I never had to read that one. Quite a few pretty mediocre... And of Green on. Gables. Ugh! This is a staple of school reading lists. It won the Newbery Award, which back in the days when that was a sign of true quality. When did we read it? Because I only read this a week ago (laughs) for the first time. I I thought I had read it in elementary school, but I'm pretty sure now that I've read it now that I totally didn't. Or maybe somebody else had your memories. I originally read this around grade six or seven, and then a couple years ago, um, I was on YouTube. I saw the trailer for the movie. And then I immediately rushed out to buy a copy of the book before they ruined it with a crappy movie cover. Mm -hmm. Which is important because the original cover is weirdly striking despite being super simple. Yeah. I read it, I want to say, like a year or some ago. It was not long after you got it. Yeah, I I recommended it to you, I think. As with so many of the books we talk about, my husband bought it. So I read it. It is such a mainstay... (laughs) around people our age (laughs) that I already knew all the plot points of this book, all the characters and the setting. Even though, as I said, I'm pretty sure I never actually read it back in the day. Well, to be fair, even, uh, like, I didn't know anything about it before I read it. Pretty obvious. (laughs) Let's just start going through. It's not exactly a subtle book. (laughs) No. And recently we've had this big rash of dystopian young adult fiction. We kind of reached the tail end of that, and it's now in its burnout stage where publishers aren't accepting anything from there. Mm -hmm. And we usually thought that that kind of started in the wake of The Hunger Games, but Mm -hmm. everything that's in The Hunger Games or in that kind of book pretty much started with The Giver, as far as I can tell. Which is funny, because it was like a decade and a half before... Or sorry, minimum a decade and a half before the whole trend really took off from the time this book was actually written. I thought it was a much older book. I thought it was from the 70s as opposed to 1993. And The Hunger Games wasn't the first major dystopian novel for that age group that came out at the time. There were quite a few before it. It was of a piece. But all the things that we associate with that particular subgenre, which is pretty narrow, like capitalizing innocuous words 
to make them seem really significant for life events. Started here. I still maintain so, Daniel Daniel Defoe did that first. <laughs> and even the shape of the society in this is much imitated. Mm-hmm. But it's not nearly as shallow, despite its simplicity, mm-hmm. well, as I, I, other books of its type. <laughs> I think what's interesting about um, The Giver is, despite its relative, I guess, newness in terms of literature, it, it's already kind of considered one of the great dystopian novels. And it's definitely considered the great kids' dystopian novel, or great YA dystopian novel, or whatever you want to call it. But like, it, it's frequently held up with 1984 and Brave New World. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it reminds me lots of Brave New World. And a little bit mm-hmm. of The Dispossessed. A little bit. Mm. Actually, we will be talking about comparisons with another Le Guin piece later mm. on that I think did influence this. It is part of a four-book series. None of the other books are nearly as well-known as this one. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in the series, they're thematically linked. They're not necessarily all set in, like, the same location. I think they take place in the same world, but each one explores a different broken society in that world. But I haven't read them. I haven't really looked much into them. I was going to read the second one, but I went, I don't have time before recording this, so I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, this is the most well-known. It it won awards. It got on school reading lists extremely quickly Mm -hmm. based on the publishing date and when we were going to school, which surprises me. And I guess speaking so much about the phenomenon surrounding this book and what came out after it, it might be a good idea to talk about what this book actually is about. Oh, yeah! That would be a handy spot to start. It's just like dystopian YA stuff. Like, really. (laughs) Like I said, the plot's pretty simple. Uh, Marie is taking the tact of, you have already read this book, you just didn't know it. This is why we didn't bother with a spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there really isn't that much to it for plot. It's all about atmosphere, Mm -hmm. theme, Mm -hmm. not even so much character, because all the characters in this are, by the dictates of the setting, Mm -hmm. pretty uninteresting and made to be so. So it's about a boy named Jonas. His, he He's, lives in a perfect world. Nothing ever changes. There's He's no He's about to turn 12 and go to the capital C ceremony. Ceremony. <laughs> where people are assigned their role in life for the rest of their lives. No, more capitals Every, there. <laughs> yeah, everybody else gets a regular role, but no, he is going to be the receiver of memory. He's the special snowflake. And he has to go train with the giver of memory. Mm-hmm. Or and I guess he has to train with the current receiver of memory, who, upon the training beginning... Becomes the giver, by, like, just how verbs work. Yeah, it's, um, the way it's described in the book is... Jonas basically just lies on his face, the giver places a hand on his back, recalls a memory, and then somehow through magic-y magic book stuff, that memory is transferred into Jonas. Mm-hmm. And it's not just personal memories from the giver, um, the giver's own experiences, it's, it's kind of hinted at being all human memory. 
So everything from, you know, mundane events, like what it feels like to ride a sled or going to a party up to what war actually is. Like not just memories of being in war, although those are certainly part of it, but just concepts or even the very concept of war, which the society no longer has. And it's not that it doesn't have even these events. It's that it lacks concepts more than anything. Like they don't know what war is. They don't know what destruction is. They barely have a grasp of what death is. Or even, indeed, the sort of emotional connection to these things, which is sort of the big part, because it's all the memories, but it's like the the tone of the memory that is accompanied with it, that, and that is also given and received. And through receiving these small bits of memory and kind of growing into his role, Jonas learns maybe our society ain't so great, and it builds up to a pretty predictable revelation. Mm-hmm which then leads to Jonas escaping mm-hmm. from this society, all packed into what plot there is, is all packed into the last two chapters, mm-hmm. which is a fairly common structure for middle-grade novels of the time. That's yeah. that is. I, I will say, despite everything this book does becoming like genre tropes at this point, it doesn't... Yes, the conclusions are predictable, but they're predictable in a way where they still feel surprising when they happen. Like, it's very well written. It still evolves in the way a book should. Like, when the important, like, shocking moments in the character's life hits, there's still that emotional impact to you as the reader. It's not like, oh, he's finally reached part X of the cliche. It's, oh, wow, he's reached an interesting point in the story. And, I mean, it's it's sort of stripped down in a way as unnecessary things just aren't put in. I'd say that every, that it's one of those books where it's it's so short, but everything that's in it needs to be there to, well, it, to do the work. Yeah, it's it's a minimalist writing style. It's not short simply because the author couldn't make it longer. It's like you said, it's short because it says everything it needs to. It's importantly not short just because the author's writing for kids. No, that, no. That, that's another key point. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is not about absorbing you in the thrilling plot. It's all about thinking about the society and what it means to take on memory, mm-hmm. the emotional connections that people have between them, etc., etc. Revealing how empty their society was. Again, I, I do feel like I need to defend the book here, because we're making it sound really boring. I don't think so. But the beautiful thing about it is it's not. Like I, I, like I said, I reread this as an adult, and... Even knowing the plot, even having read it, it enthralled me right from the first page to the end. Like it, it's. I think I read it in about mm, thirty-six hours because it's again it's quite short. But I was like, oh, I'll bring this to work tomorrow, and I was like, I will just not go to bed. And I was like, I will go to bed, and I finished it on my lunch break. Like it's it, you do it is a page turner because it's just it, I think it just evokes curiosity versus thrilling you. It just makes you sort of like wonder. About the about the world and wonder what's going to happen. Eventually, you're kind of like, ah, what's going to happen to Jonas? Will he? He does! Yay! I, I think you could argue it's the best kind of delayed gratification, because the payoff at the end, while not necessarily clear, is definitely worth getting to. But you enjoy every second of it. You like, oh, you know, there's kind of like this conscious part of you that's like, okay, this is going to pay off, this is going to pay off. But by no means is it boring waiting for that payoff. You're like, oh my god, this is amazing, and it's going to pay off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, none of this explicating about the simplicity of the plot is a criticism of the book mm-hmm. because it's very well structured mm-hmm. and while it's using a fairly typical structure, it's using it well. 
Um, the writing itself is very straightforward. There aren't really many quotable lines no. in the book, but that also is not a detriment because it fits the story that's being told in mm-hmm. this society that is quite Drab. literally colorless. Mm-hmm. Which brings us into the nature of the dystopia here, which is a society built entirely on being as boring as possible. Although not necessarily, but that's sort of the result. That The idea is that there will be no change. Your life is very strictly controlled, mm-hmm. and... A big part of this is that you're reg- in your regimented life where you're leached away from having any emotions, any memory, and quite and taking pills to suppress sexual desire. Nothing unexpected is supposed to happen, and nobody dies of natural causes mm. or in an unexpected way. Even being born is regimented because people can't spontaneously just have sex and have babies. You have to have that role in society over, I think, three years of time that you can have children that are assigned to other families. You don't get to take care of the children that you have because that would be emotional attachment, and that's wrong. But also, when you grow older, you are taken away from the rest of the people in this town. It feels like this kind of 1950s suburb. You are executed before you can really feel pain in mm-hmm. your elderly time. Mm-hmm. You're not going to die of a disease. No, you're taken away and executed, which is the big revelation. Because <gasps> they don't say they kill people. They say we're sending them away, even though, even from the first few pages, yeah, they're going elsewhere. I wonder where that is. Yeah, the, uh, the Euthanasia. U- the euphemism throughout the book is release. And like Marie said, it, it, people are being euthanized. But again, they are so subdued, so... They lack any kind of depth to them, basically, that the idea of being euthanized or of having another person be euthanized isn't shocking. It's just, oh, this is what the rules dictate. This is how things happen. Mm-hmm. Like, there is one reference... I think there's one point where they talk about, like, a small child wandering away and accidentally drowning. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, obviously that's a shocking event for any society, but it's particularly shocking in this world just because it kind of defies their norms of how death is supposed to happen. Or that death doesn't really happen. As far as they know, death doesn't happen. Well, I mean, like you said, it's euthanasia, but it's covered in euphemism, and it's very much euthanasia as a denial of death, not an embrace of it. Mm -hmm. Variation is allowed, but it's very constricted. And, and they, if you move outside those boundaries, you are going to be released, or you will ask to be released because you think, I'm just going to be sent out of the boundaries of this territory. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's sort of been been sort of put into the psyche as being something that you absolutely don't want, because there's all that fear and unknownness and unplannedness outside. I do remember when I first, when I read it, that I was initially, sort of when they were all sitting around sharing their feelings about things. Initially, I was like, this is actually kind of great. People are actually just talking about their feelings, but they're not. They're talking about sort of their surface things, and then they've all been drilled in how to help each other suppress what their sensations are. Yeah, they're talking about like a watered-down, like emotion at its most superficial level. Tell me about your dreams if you have them, which is not often. Yes. Yeah. 
is what it boils down to most of the time. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, um, the idea of one thing, just to kind of go back to a point that was mentioned, we talked about the idea of how, like, the biggest fear people have is, oh, you know, they might somehow deviate, so they would be the ones to go request release. I think that kind of ties into the 1950s kind of sense or feel that this book very much gives off. Now, I, I don't know that it was conscious on the author's part, but there's almost kind of this McCarthyist mentality to it. Well, the 1950s atmosphere is also bolstered by everybody's primary form of transportation being a bicycle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, although it is that, that sharing thing, that and that's what, what makes me think of The Dispossessed, is the, like, where they, they say, stop egoizing. It's kind of the same thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> it's sort of like, you're not supposed to be self-centered. Because there's not, you're almost not even supposed to be a self. You're just, you really are a unit. But in a way that in the dispossessed allows, for, like the dispossessed would allow for like it's positive. Po- it's it's it, like that society. I'm like I could live in this one and, and that one. Like it could happen. This one I'd be like, God, it'd be awful because you'd just be a drone entirely. Yeah, and this air of conformity is externalized mm-hmm. by the fact that people can't see color. Yeah for the most part, in this society. Mm-hmm. It's not really explained why they've lost yeah. the ability to see color. It's, it seems to be a metaphorical yeah. device to show. Yeah. Magic the magic They are so suppressed <laughs> that they can't even recognize the color mm-hmm. in the world around them. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I agree that it's meant to be a metaphor, and in that regard, I don't think... I don't think the book explains it because it doesn't matter. No, it does not need to be explained, like, and it works effectively here because Jonas mm-hmm. is selected as the next receiver of memory because people recognize mm-hmm. that way. Well, I don't really know if he really tells anyone that he can see color, mm-hmm. but he, the, um, last re- the last receiver recognizes that he can or is starting to see red. Yeah, mm-hmm. Where it starts is um, he sees in black and white like everyone else. Well, grayscale. Oh, sorry, yeah, grayscale. And then he'll have like these flashes where he, he doesn't understand it because he doesn't have the concept or the vocabulary to express it, but there's just something different. And as the book kind of continues, it's revealed when he gains an understanding of what color is, he realizes that, oh, I was seeing color. And then the more memories he receives, it switches. So instead of just seeing random flashes of color on occasion, he starts seeing in color all the time. Mm-hmm. It's a very effective literary device here because you mm-hmm. don't notice that nothing is described in term of, terms of color mm-hmm. until Jonas himself recognizes that mm-hmm. what he see what he saw before was red. That mm-hmm. was red. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like um, I think it's mentioned. It's an apple, is what he sees yeah. it in. And then the next time he sees it, it's he's standing in front of an audience of people. And he kind of sees a flash and kind of like the underlying red tones in their skin. Yeah. And sameness isn't only confined to how people are treated in this book. There are literally no hills because they were bulldozed <laughs> or something <laughs> that happened to them. Yes. There is no variation in the weather because Somehow. of weather control in that confined geographic area, mm-hmm. meaning they don't really see the sun because mm-hmm. it's permanently cloudy. Mm. I don't remember that part. Well, I brought it up anyway. Okay. They got to you! (laughs) Apparently they did. 
<laughs> and this is where we know that it's happening in the future, but mm -hmm. we never really learn why the world has become this way. It does help that it takes place in a very limited geographic region yeah. that can be escaped yeah. to help yeah. enhance the believability of maybe in this little bubble this can be achieved. Well, I, I think um, one of the main reasons for that is... I think it's worth considering target audience here. I mean, again, this book was written for you know young adults, kids, whatever the um, the publishing term is now. And it's I think you could argue that it's harder for a kid to have a concept of you know a mass global system of oppression when you're dealing with people who their world is maybe their neighborhood or their community. Because I mean, I don't know what what it was like for you guys, but I certainly kind of remember that being kind of a sense of childhood. It's it's easier to express this in the terms and the language and the surroundings a child would be familiar with. I can't remember when did this come out. And I think I feel like this might have been after The Handmaid's Tale. Um, Probably. I think yet. it was because that's another dystopian society that is localized in a location. So and it, and it's kind of it's kind of like I really wouldn't buy it if the entire world was like this, but that a, like a splinter group of some, I don't know, religion or like conservative something really wanted to do something. I could believe that happening. So I think it actually works better than having it being like, well, although 1984 works fantastically, <laughs> being like that where everything is. 1984 That's does a few different things yeah. though. Different. It's a different book other than, you know, <laughs> just being different. Yeah. So our whole sameness also applies to relationships between people, which are also superficial, and nobody mm -hmm. forms deep bonds outside of their own sense of community. Mm -hmm. Children are assigned to families for a limited period of time mm -hmm. before they end up taking on their roles and having to live that out to the mm -hmm. end of their terms. The only deep relationship we see developing in this book are between Jonas and the Giver mm -hmm. and between Jonas and a child who gets adopted into their family, not in the usual way, but just so that that child can be stabilized mm -hmm. so that his father, who is a nurturer who works raising babies, mm -hmm. doesn't have to send the child to be released. He's mm -hmm. trying everything to make sure that this child is healthy and won't be euthanized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, one thing you just mentioned that I think kind of is an interesting point of this as well. You talk about children being assigned to families, but it's still very much a society that has the stereotypical nuclear family unit. Every family mm -hmm. has a mother and a father, even though they're not actually married in any conventional sense. They don't have sex. They don't have any kind of intimate relationship. And they raise two children. And they only ever raise two children, and one is supposed to be a boy, and one is supposed to be a girl. And, I mean, it mentions how there are certain allowances for years where there are more boys or girls born. A family might end up with with um, one of each. But generally speaking, it's supposed to follow a template. So why is there a family unit? Right? Like, if it's such a superficial thing, why does it exist? And I think it kind of ties into that concept we mentioned of normalcy structure yeah like the book very much challenges okay what are quote-unquote normal structures but why are they normal whereas again bringing up the dispossessed again because i see a lot of similarities in the sort of family relationships there 
technically anybody could take care of any group of kids. Like, it's just thoroughly kind of thrown in, because you just kind of go into that space where all the kids are. And usually people take care of the same kids, but it's, like, really fluid. But it's more like you can connect with everybody versus nobody has connections, as I think the big difference between the two. Here, connections are explicitly severed at most opportunities. And it is interesting to see a typical family unit that is artificially constructed mm-hmm. and then playing around in that area, seeing how, what does that look like and how would it work? Mm-hmm. The answer being terribly. <laughs> well, it's also interesting because you're talking about a structure, an institution that's effectively meant to ensure close connections, namely family, being employed to prevent connections like it's a very weird um paradigm like it's a weird notion like there is a very much a sense of disconnect i'm not convinced that this world doesn't work it seems to be actually chugging along pretty well well Uh, everything in it is towards its own sustaining itself yeah it means yes this society is going on yes technically it works yeah. But it really sucks to live Oh, yeah, it sucks. But it only sucks if you know about it. And you only know about it if you're the giver or the, or if you're one of the receivers. Well, I think we kind of just touched on the core of any dystopia, though, mm-hmm. in that you don't know it sucks unless you can see it sucking. And it has to work, right? Like, it doesn't have to work realistically, but it's very much a part of the book that you have to believe the society works. That's why 1984 is so terrifying. Yeah, and in this book, we don't go into why the society came out this way or what investment people have in making it go on in this particular fashion, which is a good thing when discussing a society like this because it's about a self-sustaining system that only exists to perpetuate itself. I'm going to actually argue part of that. Um, You mentioned how we don't really see any reason why it continues. We actually do see the society... um, or the society's motives for perpetuating itself, namely that just everyone is so indoctrinated to that they're not capable of conceiving of any other way of thinking. The notion for why it's perpetuated isn't because they're afraid of something different or because they're not willing to allow something different. The society's motive to continue is that it's not capable of grasping anything else. It's There's literally nobody here who can conceive of things being in a different way. So I, in a weird way, the motive to continue... Is, is it tautology? Yeah, it is. It's it, well, we have to continue because we've always continued. It's literally a group of people who cannot conceive of anything else, and if you pre- present them with an alternative, they're not going to rebel it or, against it or reject it or be afraid. They're just not even going to understand the point. It's like, what do you mean things could be different, right? Like it, it's 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 I guess soft oppression for lack of a better word, like. They're being oppressed, but they're so oppressed and so repressed that they don't even know it. That to, pre- to present a different option is to speak gibberish, because that just can't be a thing. It's ultimate homeostasis, because any perturbance of the world is reacted to in a way that, that creates stability. However, they do feel fear mm-hmm. of the unknown and discomfort, because we're mm-hmm. told that one person's memories were released into the community mm-hmm. at an yeah. earlier date, and this caused an unspecified bad time. Everyone, everyone got else. a bit angsty, probably. Again, the mechanics of how it <laughs> Oh work... my god, they got all teenage! <laughs> the mechanics of how it work aren't explained, and again, that's not a bad thing. 
But um, in the in the living memory of many of the adults in the community, Jonas is actually the second receiver of memory. There was another one a few years prior. I think this, it might have even been before he was born, or at most when he was an infant. And she, for whatever reason, just couldn't cope with it. She was, she went to the giver, she received the memories, and then eventually she went and she asked for relief. So she euthanized herself. And then all her memories. And then the memories she received were somehow released into the community, and not all of them were pleasant ones. Some of them were of negative concepts like loneliness, like fear. And as you said, it it had some kind of destructive influence, but it's not spelled out how. I think the 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 character of the giver states that he started with what he thought was like too much for her. Like he started getting rid of the emotions that he the memories that he found painful. I think was what that was what he said happened, and then no, he... no, no. What, what he did is, it's mentioned how he basically fell in love with her despite the age gap, and so um, he, he couldn't it's bring not that he fell in love with her. It's in that manner. It's he says at one point that she was his daughter. Right. Sorry. Yes. He he came to love her basically, um, like you said, as a parent loves a child, and so he couldn't bring himself to give her painful memories. But she was insightful enough to recognize that he was holding back, so she asked him to stop doing it. And so when he gave her some kinds of pain, even though he gave her very limited pain compared to the, like, the numerous types that exist, it was still too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the main science fiction conceit in this book, is not its dystopia, it's the technology, for lack of a better word, of memory transference. Yeah, somehow one person is able to hold all these things, and if they don't, like, it's required that there has to be a person to do it to make everyone this washed out and compliant, because if they don't, then it spills, for some reason. It's not only that. (laughs) They would get rid of these memories if they could. (laughs) They transfer it into one person just in case something unexpected does happen, because Mm. that's the only way they can adapt to it in a Mm. effective way. Oh, yeah. If they lost the memories of the community that were put into this one person, they would basically collapse mm-hmm. if something yeah. they didn't expect suddenly came up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess the disadvantage of homeostasis is you have no ability to deal with something unexpected, so you need at least one person who can appreciate the unexpected. Well, that's sort of like not the definition of homeostasis. The disadvantage right. of trying to do homeostasis in a society, because society is not meant to, it's never really static in that sense. Because homeostasis is like a cell maintaining like the amount of fluid it needs. Okay. And that's like in pumps and out pumps. Like that's that kind of thing. Sorry. Yeah. yeah because we learn early on in the novel that even a unscheduled mm-hmm. flight above the community mm-hmm. is enough to cause people to just break mm-hmm. down. <laughs> yep. They're very fragile. Something, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, something is deviating. Something unexpected is happening. Like, how can that be? And then if that can be, then what else can be? One theme of this book is that pain is necessary and mm-hmm. taking it away from people might mm-hmm. not be the best way to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Well, c- kind of one of the main themes of the book in general is that being human is to be multifaceted. It's to take the good with the bad. Life is pain, princess. Anyone says otherwise is selling something. Quote-unquote my favorite movie. So they burden (laughs) one person, which means he ends up huddled in a corner 
Yep. For big chunks of this book. <laughs> and then everybody ignores that person. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Everyone ignores them despite them being the most honored member of the community. Because mm-hmm. it's this bizarre thing where even though everybody's effectively the same, I mean, you're assigned your profession at a certain age. Mm-hmm. There are still professions that have more quote unquote honor, things that are considered more desirable or better. And what's interesting about it is while those people might have more influence on some superficial aspects of shaping the community, it's not like they actually have dictatorial power. Mm-hmm. Like it's not like they have the ability to radically change the community because they themselves aren't capable of radical change with the exception of the giver and the receiver, of course, but they're still kind of considered honored. Yeah, it's like a distant, repressed thing. I should have respect for this person because it's required, but otherwise that that makes them different, so I'll sort of ignore that. Yeah, it's like this bizarre notion of maintaining a hierarchy despite the fact that one doesn't really exist. The giver doesn't really hold any power in the community besides consultation. Mm Mm-hmm. They yeah. defer to him when something they can't deal with happens. Mm-hmm. But once that... It's like in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mm-hmm. when they go and land on the one planet with the real ruler mm-hmm. of the universe, mm-hmm. and that's the only time they care about this person, <laughs> mm-hmm. is when a problem comes up, and otherwise they just completely mm-hmm. pretend that he doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting what you mentioned, um, how the, the giver or the receiver has no power. Because I think that's kind of one of the arguments of the book, is that no matter how powerless you might seem, having knowledge is a form of power. And I mean, obviously, that's a very superficial lesson, and it's a very obvious one, but I I do think it's still kind of an important aspect of what the book is trying to say. Well, there is an analog here towards how we in society deal with collective memory and history. Mm Mm-hmm whether we look back on it and try and learn something from it and do something with it, or if it's just too painful or too hard to deal with, let's just bury it. Mm -hmm. You see both sides of those mentalities in this book. Mm -hmm. Of course, the let's look back at the past ends up being concentrated on two people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they become the heroes of the story. Well... Fundamentally, Jonas does not have any agency mm-hmm. in a society that takes away agency. Mm-hmm. But once he's able to get hold of those memories and start understanding mm-hmm. things, that's when he's able to gain the power to make choices for himself. Well, that, that's kind of tying into the argument I was just making. It's that having just that little bit of knowledge, those little that little bit of memory gives him agency that he previously lacked. The only plot hole, though, is that why didn't that happen to the previous receivers? Like, why did they actually do their function? We don't know how long this has been happening. Yeah. I guess is the main point Mm -hmm. with that. We -hmm. only know about the last time a transference took place, which was with Rosemary, and Mm -hmm. we know she couldn't deal with it and effectively committed suicide. Because it sort of makes you think that it's a relatively young society. I don't know if that's really a plot hole, though, because in a society where everything is meant to be kept as stable and regulated as possible, isn't it at least probable that it has happened before and the society just again plunged it into their collective ignorance? But again, we don't know because we never dive into the deep past of how this place came to be. Again, it's... 
I don't know that that's an issue, though, because it's very much the kind of book where you don't need to know the full backstory to appreciate that the society functions as it does. Well, none of that is thematically important to what Lois Lowry is trying to say. <laughs> exactly, and because it's not thematically important, it ends up not actually affecting the story. We're just nitpicking on world building because we're nerds. <laughs> we're nerds. We're huge nerds. What? Nerds complaining on the internet? <laughs> See the podcast where we play through some old D and D type story books. I'm referencing the heck out of those ones because that was such a miserable time. <laughs> As we alluded to, Jonas finds out that his adopted father is killing babies. Yep. Essentially, mm-hmm. he decides to go in on this plan with the giver to escape because, for whatever reason, the memory transference is localized. Mm-hmm. Once you leave the boundary of whatever technological advancement has made this possible, the memories will be released into the community. And mm-hmm. not just so that a few memories go and maybe one or two people get it, everybody will gain these memories once you leave. Mm-hmm. And the book is very clear at the point Jonas decides to leave just how many memories he has. Like, he's gained everything, like I said, really pleasant, simple things. I think the first memory he's given is actually what it's like to ride on a sled. Mm-hmm. So he's got literally everything running the spectrum from that to war. Mm-hmm. Like, the darkest, nastiest aspects of war. <laughs> and that's all released at once. Rosebud. <laughs> yeah, we don't see what the result of this is. Which all is we... great. Yes, all we have is that... In an unexpected plot development, Jonas decides to save the baby too, Mm -hmm. which is the action on his own part, and that does make it important because he's not working on the giver's instructions. This, in fact, makes things worse for him Mm -hmm. during his escape. Mm -hmm. He makes it out from the boundary. He finally finds a hill. There's a sled. And once again, we're back in the dispossessed. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. And also, potentially, just because there's a sled, the left hand of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yeah, I think the book even makes a comment or has a line about mm. him experiencing his first memory or something like that as he rides the sled. Yeah. And I, I think, um, considering the way the book ends, you could probably make the argument that he's hallucinating. But it's one of those things where, so what if he is? It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. because whether this is happening in a real space or it's happening entirely in his head, it's kind of symbolic of his journey coming cir- full circle and him kind of finding that escape from mediocrity into being a full person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the hint at the end is that he's found another community mm-hmm. outside of the boundaries. We don't mm-hmm. know what shape that community will take. We don't even know if it's real or if he's just imagining it because he's starving and mm-hmm. freezing. Mm -hmm. near death Mm -hmm. but we hope that everything works out for him yep it's a great ending though because it's basically an ultimate noodle incident (laughs) it's because you have to kind of do the work instead of the author it's kind of i kind of i heard a description a little while ago of what makes a perfect ending in that it's completely expected and completely unexpected in the same time meaning you can't see it coming before you get to it, but when you do, you can't think of any other way it would have ended. And I think that's very much one of those. Like, how else could this book have ended? Like, how, how else could it have ended while still having the same impact, the same emotional depth, the same just awe-inspiring, like, feeling it does? 
I think any other ending would have either just left you feeling short or it would have just been so much extra exposition that it would have been boring. Exactly. So we've been making Ursula K. Le Guin comparisons all over the place over the course of this podcast. I think the closest parallel I would draw is to a short story called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelus. It's three pages. You can probably just go read it on the internet right now. Mm-hmm. Pretty pretty famous story. Mm-hmm. And in that one, their society is based on suffering. And it's about ah, how some people, some people are revealed this... Well, everybody has revealed that at one point in their life, and they have a choice to just forget about it and continue living there, or to walk away. Oh, it's that Doctor Who episode on the space whale. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly it. Jonas is one of the people who walks away from Omelus, but in The Giver, the society isn't based on suffering, it's based on a lack of suffering. That was the main point I was going to make about mm-hmm. that. Feel free to add what you want. Well, I, I, I agree that it's based on a lack of suffering. And I, to kind of tie it into what we've been talking about throughout the podcast is that suffering is an important part of being a human. You can't appreciate what things like happiness actually mean unless you know what their complete opposite and their complete lack is like. Victor Frankl would argue that the meaning of life requ- may require suffering. There. And all that deep thematic content is what separates this book from others in its ilk. Also, it doesn't have stupid urban design. It really avoids what has been called the YA dystopia trap. Mm -hmm. This has come up a lot in other discussions about dystopias where the whole point of the book is, look at this terrible society. Isn't it bad? We should overthrow it. But there's no real applicability mm-hmm. to anything going on now or what this is supposed to mean. It's just, of course that society's bad. And <laughs> What's but the, the point? thing is that I think the great thing about this is that it's like it's not like the society is like from the outset like truly awful. You can you can argue that suffering is created because you take away individuality and motivation and all these things, but it's not like in some stories where it's like, look, they make a bunch of kids fight and kill each other for reasons. Well, it, like that's which is sort of more obvious, obviously like dissonant with our, with our morality. In um, in English literature, there's kind of like the two great dystopian novels, if you will. One is 1984 by George Orwell. Uh, the other is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And they kind of establish, I guess for lack of a better term, the two models of a dystopia. 1984 has got the boot coming down forever on the face of humanity. Where Brave New World, it's more the soft dystopia, where there's a sense of giving people everything they should want, while depriving them of what it means to be human for doing so. And th- this is very much a dystopia in the vein of Brave New World, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, th- there's no overt violence. There's no overt destruction. There's no big brother figure. There's no elite class maintaining it for their own betterment at the detriment of everyone else. It's literally just this society is so inundated with this one approach that they're losing everything it means to be human without even really realizing it. But in Brave New World, you can just go live on the island. If you're like, don't fit here, only the, only the receiver can't fit, really. Otherwise, you killed. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, to be fair, <laughs> Brave New World never actually addresses the island. They always reference, oh, you could go to the island, you could go to the island. Nobody's ever actually shown going to the island. We don't get the perspective of a character on the island. Mm-hmm. So thematically, it's really not any different from, quote-unquote, being released. Like, mm-hmm. the characters in this town even use it euphemistically. It's like, oh, well, if I got that job, I'd be so miserable, I'd go request release. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like right? being a birth mother. Yeah. Yeah. Which, it's... It's this weird thing where it's considered necessary to be a birth mother. These are literally women whose sole purpose is to have children. They as have three... far as I can tell, they're just artificially inseminated. I think so. Yeah, and their the role is they have three children, and then they just become laborers for the rest of their lives, doing just various labor jobs that the community requires. And it's this weird thing where even though they're considered essential, mm-hmm. they're looked down upon. At least in the dispossessed, like there's the freedom to like do the thing that's most like part of you because that becomes part of the society's needs. Well, again, the dispossessed um, isn't a dystopia, though. Yeah, I mean the subtitle. We've also talked about the dispossessed on another podcast. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean the subtitle of the dispossessed is something like an ambiguous utopia, and the whole point of that is that it's not a perfect world. It's a realistically flawed one, though. Yeah. Where this is actively a dystopia, this is actively an excessively flawed world. So this book is, having read it now, you see bits and pieces of it pop up in a lot of other media that came out following it, mm-hmm. in like really strange places too, in referencing the structure of the society, like this low-budget film called Equilibrium, mm-hmm. that owes quite a bit to this, but with <gasps> a lot more gun kata. <laughs> Equilibrium wasn't low-budget, it was just low-exposure. Well, it didn't have a very wide release. <laughs> No. It was a flop. It did, ha- it did have Sean Bean, however, and it's actually a pretty good movie. Yeah, it pops up in strange places. You go, oh, that's from The Giver. Why is that here? Well, The Giver is one of those books where, I mean, 1993, so the book's over 20 years old, but in that time, it's actually become canonical. Like, it's become considered one of those, like, great works of literature that you have to read. And I, I definitely feel that that's actually deserved praise. I mean, it's an incredible book. Like, despite its relative, despite being relatively short in length and relatively small on plot, like, look how much of a discussion we've gotten out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, why do you think this ended up on school reading lists? Because it's pretty atypical for what does appear there. Because uh, somebody realized it had to be something actually worth reading on those damn things. This this does count as the one book on school reading list that people actually go, hey, I read that. That's the one I actually liked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in terms of why this would end up on school reading lists, I can think of kind of a couple reasons, none of which are particularly flattering to schools or to school systems. Um, despite being a very good book, it does kind of have that slight atmosphere of oh this is a literary book therefore you have to read it that school curriculums love like it it just so happened that while it does have all the literary aspects it's also a good book and again not to say the literary books aren't good i enjoy many of them but that's not the kind of typical book that grade school kids are going to gravitate to i think Part of it is that it is easy to do a surface-level reading of The Giver and spit out a five-paragraph essay. And there's a lot more that you could possibly say about it. I hate to agree with that point, but I don't think it's wrong. Like, I, I think 
Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I do think that on a superficial level, the metaphors of this book are... The metaphor, the allegory of this book is easy enough to grasp that any kid should be able to do it. Which, again, gets into a certain unfortunate territory because despite the fact that anybody should be able to get the surface level stuff, like we've said, there's so much more to it. And I feel like assigning that kind of descriptor to this book sells it short. It it strips away so much of what makes it a unique and beautiful work of literature and it's an absolute pleasure to read. Yeah, but we're used to that from high school, right? Yeah, unfortunately we are. Um, I think in elementary in... school. Did you guys read Robot Alert? No. No. I don't think... I think the BC curriculum just had a weird set of books on it, too. That did not include The Giver. <laughs> the Alberta one wasn't much better. Um, I do think another reason this ends up in school so often is that um, 1984 and Animal Farm are kind of the two two of the other go-to books for explaining dystopias and kind of encouraging critical thought in kids. But they're a little more complex, so they're not usually introduced till kind of later junior high, early high school. Whereas The Giver introduces you to those kind of ideas, but in a way that younger children are able to handle. I'd agree with that. Also, now, Brave New World, or 1984 and Animal Farm also kind of lend themselves to surface-level essay reading, too. Oh, very much so, which yeah. is, again sells them incredibly short, but it's why they usually end up on curriculums. Mm -hmm. Curricula. Curricula, sorry. Um, but I think one of the reasons this is held up so highly and it still continues to be taught and read, especially with YA dystopias being so popular, is this is kind of, not only is this the original one, it arguably did it the best. On now that that's, point, well, there is a movie now, which neither of us have seen. <laughs> No, I refuse never. to watch the movie. Never. Um, I refuse to watch it for a couple of reasons. Namely, Hollywood's proven ability to ruin wonderful books. And quite frankly, I think it would be crap. For that, for that reason alone, I think it would be an awful movie. The second reason I refuse to watch it is because it was made into a movie amidst a glut of YA dystopian movies. So... At that point, the studio's not concerned or as concerned with making a good movie. They're concerned with cashing in on the trend and making money off of it. And I mean, again, they need to make money. I get that. But you can, there's very much a sense I get from it of, okay, we're going to cash in and maximize profit while we can, rather than try to make a profit on a good, solid movie. The tenor of the advertising around the movie, in <laughs> retrospect, seems antithetical to the tone of the book. They <laughs> sold think... it as this big action piece, which yeah. is not what the book The Giver is. I was, my understanding was that the movie was really not like the book at all, and it was kind of, I think, t only tangentially in the end related in terms of the screenplay. It's kind of the impression I got. But um, you mentioned how big action set piece kind of movie. I, I think that's one of the unfortunate things about the YA dystopian genre is I, I I mean I haven't personally read The Hunger Games. I know many people who yeah, have. We totally did. We even podcasted about it. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, mean, yeah. I, I, I know many people like you guys who speak quite highly of them. I'm sure they're very the first one. Okay, at least the first one. I'm sure they're very good. But the problem is, like I said, it's trendy. So Hollywood is just taking this thing because it's trendy and embracing only the bare minimum 
of what it is that makes it special to focus on the more marketable elements, i.e. the action, the violence, the love triangles, etc. I guess the weirdest part of this is that it was a big-budget Hollywood movie at all. Uh, I could imagine this being made into like a made-for-TV miniseries on a low budget and turning out pretty good. <laughs> See, I can picture that. I can picture it as an art house movie. I can actually picture it as a big-budget movie, mm-hmm. but not the way it was done. I, I would honestly, had it not been for the trend of YA um, novels being turned into movies, I would think that if this got turned into a film at all, it would have been like what they used to call a prestige picture. Like it would effectively be, it effectively would have been Oscar bait. <laughs> yeah, we could argue whether that would have been a good or bad thing. But... We can, but I don't think we've got time to get into it here. But like, I, I, I guess the argument I'm trying to make is. If you're going to adapt this to film, that's probably the best way to make it work. That, or like you said, low-budget BBC, because they do awesome stuff. Yeah, yeah and I mean, seeing that least... we haven't seen the movie, we're basically yeah. going by the advertising campaign, which maybe yeah. isn't fair. But yeah. I did think it was an interesting thing to bring up that, hey, this became a movie not too long ago. And then I didn't really hear much about it after, actually. I, yeah. think it, I don't think it did that well. No. Like I said, I, I saw it out on YouTube, I ran out and bought the book... And I think I literally saw one other advertisement after that, and then nothing. Yeah. yeah so what else is there to say? Had a really strangely good cover. A very memorable cover. Yeah. Uh, again, this is one of those aspects of design where I have no idea why it sticks in your head, but the thing it's I like remembered the... about this book, despite having not read it for so long, was the cover. It really started the the black and white with just a bit of red on it trend, maybe. Because we saw that a lot in um during and since the I did the, the names the books whose names will not be spoken. Okay, just because you're a huge snob <laughs> then, <I'll, laughs> I, then being, I will at least mention Twilight. I was being funny, but yeah, Twilight yeah. definitely yeah. followed up on that. Yeah. So Yeah, strangely influential in book cover design. Of all yeah. Things. <laughs> Yeah, well, whoever originally did the book cover design, good on him. Yeah, so grab a yeah. copy while it still has a good cover, I guess. It, it I guess doesn't maybe anymore. there never was a movie cover, or there never will be again, probably. Yeah, I wasn't willing to take that risk. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Um, I, I think one thing I would definitely like to say about this book is it's one of those ones where it seems to hold up no matter what age you read it at. Because, mm-hmm. again, I originally... It's like The Little Prince that way. Kind of. I, I mean, I originally read it as a kid, and I remember really enjoying it in school. And then when I read it as an adult, I just got... There are so many more layers that become accessible to you. So it went from being this book I had to read in school that I still enjoyed to like, oh my god, this is amazing. Like, it, it's one of those books where I found when I was done, it, it felt like I'd been part of something very special. It felt like something very... It felt like a special change had taken place in me. Like, I actively felt maybe a little bit sadder, but a little bit wiser for it. And yet that was also an amazing thing to have experienced. And that's reading it as an adult. That's not reading it as a kid. It's, it's kind of in, in, the, what I, in what David Mitchell talks about, uh, where he's, but he talks about, um, the comedian, not the writer, talks about um, making TV shows that are, are, are for adults, but that kids can watch too, versus making... TV shows for kids that adults also enjoy. This is a book that's really, you could say, is a book that you can that is for and for adults, but that kids can also 
access. I, I think I can appreciate. Yeah. You know, I, I think I agree with that. I, I think that's a good way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thanks to the mm-hmm. relative lengths of books in the bookstore, it got shelved mm-hmm. in the middle grade section. Mm-hmm. Is kind of how I interpret it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it was written before writing like the massive tomes for YA books was a trend. So. Yeah. Which I think arguably worked be- worked out in its favor because I can't see this being any longer and still mm-hmm. working. And it helps that it gains so much exposure. Yeah. From being in middle grade and ending up on school lists, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, so was it Scholastic Book Orders ever? Uh, oh, probably. Probably <laughs> was. Yeah. So that would have helped. Oh man, I remember those. Those were awesome. Yeah. All right. Once again, thank you two for your childhoods. I haven't even explained that to the audience. (laughs) No. Uh, Guess what? You need to read the book to find out. Thanks for listen- Thanks everyone for listening to the One Last Sketch podcast. You can find me, Michael, at my blog, onelastsketch.wordpress.com. You can find past episodes there, or you can go on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also follow me on Twitter, at One Last Sketch. And uh, you can find me over at yatropexy.wordpress.com. I'm post-call today, which is why I'm a little addled. But, but, soon to be out of the rotating internship part of my life. And it may be, maybe into producing more content. <gasps> and I can affa- occasionally be found roaming the outer dark. One of the best places to be. Mm-hmm. If you like this podcast, recommend it. Goodbye to all. See you next time. Mm-hmm. Although not really, because it's a podcast. Yeah, sure. And recording. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>